On this episode of Doctor Who's That, we talk about hairy cave trunks, a surprisingly lovely cave system, and how there's no good way to talk about essence extraction. Welcome back to Doctor Who's That. This is your Doctor Who expert, Sean Gleason. Joining me as always, we have Andy. Hello, I'm Andy, and I am uh, your Doctor Who modern fan. And Bay. And uh, I am Bay, and I am your newbie. I live in a cave. Yeah, you missed you missed the chance to call yourself the Savage fan. <laughs> oh, no, fan. they'll know I'm Savage from my review of this. <laughs> and joining us this time we have kieran welcome back kieran thank you i feel old for some reason i can't entirely put my finger on (laughs) (laughs) so yeah we are talking about the savages this time alternate title for this one was the white savages so let's be glad they decided to change that (laughs) <laughs> I mean, like, oh my gosh! Well, you know, it it boy, it sounds bad, but like, I mean, I think there there is a very potential slight redemption for that title. And before everybody like jumps on me, we'll talk about it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, no, I agree with you because I think I know where you're going. Yeah, um, yeah. But that yeah. that that being said, yeah, this serial yeah. was surprisingly less racist than I thought when I saw the the name for it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was expecting. I was like, "All right, tuck in. <laughs> like, we're gonna get some." If we thought smack bottom was bad, and uh, yeah. it was unnecessary to do so. You were loin cloth. Oh yes, especially since you're coming off a run of a couple that um, are kind of as bad as the show ever gets for that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just don't lift off the pavement tile to see what's underneath. This. Oh God, not the subtext. <laughs> So, yeah, this story aired in uh, late May, early June of 1966. So, our State of the Hunian at this point. Uh, This is our first story that was fully commissioned by the Lloyd Davis team, which might explain why we don't have that whole, you know, racism bit anymore. Uh, It's also our first story with an overall title rather than individual episode titles. So R.I.P. episode titles. I had forgotten that and I was really sorry to see that. Uh, Actually, I I like our individual episode titles and I was like, wait, it's the same one as the episode before it. I guess it's like just part two, part three. That's so boring. (laughs) Yeah, and it ruins all those like cheeky cliffhangers. They're like, next episode, the doctor dies of laughter. <laughs> yeah. right? Or whatever. Like they were the doctor before, like, dies his hair. 
I right. keep forgetting that this is the quirk of the way you're being introduced to this, that this is the only thing you've known when anyone going back to this story, and it's, you know, most likely almost everyone doing it that way. This is not unusual. This is the thing we're used to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like anything before this and they'd be like, what the hell? <laughs> so um, let's see. The big thing that happens in this story, of course, is that Stephen leaves. Yeah. As abruptly as you could possibly imagine. (laughs) You say that now. (laughs) Well, I just, I didn't think that it was very well telegraphed. I guess we'll get to it. Not at all. No, No, not at all. God, no. I think it's, it's badly telegraphed, but better done than some of the others. I mean, at least with Susan, they gave her like a love story or something. I'm still going to say that my all-time favorite companion departure is going to be our next one, but I won't okay. give that away just yet. Okay. <laughs> you didn't like the the ancient Greek getting or Trojan, I guess, getting sucked out the airlock. <laughs> or like it's gonna, it's like like it's gonna open with the doctor walking around alone and being like, "Boy, I'm sure I'm sad. Dodo died." <laughs> <laughs> hey. I promise they don't kill Dodo off until the books arbitrarily in the mid nineties out of nowhere. And for no good reason. Yeah. Some, yeah, some nerd somewhere was like, I had to find out Dodo died on Usenet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Not even one of the main books either. It's like a, a weird one-off tie-in thing. It's so strange. Oh, I, I have stuff written about that. Shawnee, I'm assuming that the reason that we're addressing Steven's department departure now is that there's some like weird behind the scenes stuff about it i mean not it's sort of you know it's a lot less of a story than you had with uh vicky because unlike with um maureen o'brien peter purvis knew that this was coming with his last contract renewal he had pretty much been told yeah, it's not getting renewed again. So the main story here is that Lloyd handled things a lot better with Purvis than um, Wiles handled them with uh, O'Brien. That's for sure. Yeah, if, if you want, uh, if you want the basic delineation between Wiles and Lloyd, neither of them especially wanted to be producing Doctor Who, but Lloyd knew what professionalism was. <laughs> yes. And, you know, Lloyd and Davis, they basically felt that the character was pretty shallow as written. And Purvis mostly agreed, feeling that <laughs> he had very little character development and was mostly just, you know, thrown in there to do stuff rather than be a character. So, you know, at this point, they're planning on replacing him with a character named Rich in the next story. So we'll see how that works. But um, yeah, this story itself, there's been a lot of different sources to say what it's actually, you know, about. Most will say that it was written as a parable about slavery and exploitation in general. And some most sources will say probably South African apartheid in specific. Hmm. Um, although, you know, there's a lot of different views that people have brought up about it as well it's interesting when i when i was watching this and maybe it's just the german major in me but like so the doctor compares i don't know what we're calling them the not savages though that that feeds into our our story really the um, the only thing we could call them at this point is the savages (laughs) so 
I think we'll stick with that for now. Which group of savages, and I'm yes. using quotes here, are we talking about? Which ones are supposed to be the savages of the Exactly. Title? Well, I mean, perhaps that's the clever wordplay. Yeah. So the city folk who drained the cave people like vampires seem to me- The vampires and the not vampires. Yes. Seemed to be like- I would assume that most of the folks both creating and watching the show um, would have been some of the horrors of World War Two would still be fresh in their mind. Um, of course. And and yeah. so like my mind jumped to all of the stuff that was happening on the continent uh, a few decades earlier. Yeah, I mean, it was probably a pastiche. To, yeah. to a degree. But I mean, like, you know, uh, cultural references are fickle and they, they probably had a great deal of uh, interesting, like, views on what was going on in, in, in South Africa at the time, too. So, you mm-hmm. know, it, it probably re- it really could have just been mostly about that. I, mean, I don't know where the light guns come in, but well, yeah. I mean, the I think the doctor references the Daleks, and to me, in my mind, that's always like code word for fascist. Yeah. So yeah. the they also use the word reserves once, though, mm-hmm. when they're talking about it, and th- there are a lot of different situations they can be addressing at once, and I think that may have been what they were going for. There's also the fact that um. To go more into the idea of this originally being called the White Savages, there was also apparently an original concept where the city folk, the elders, were supposed to be played entirely by actors in blackface as part of the parable. Oh. This was mostly dropped with, it seems that at least in some of those stills, the possible exception of Jano. <laughs> oh, I thought he was just really tan. Yeah. <laughs> You can't entirely tell from the stills whether that is what they did or whether they're just giving him a vague George Hamilton spray tan to set him apart as the leader. It's, it's really it's tough to tell. genuinely impossible to tell from the Well, I mean, it's group. like, uh, oh, God, what was that guy's name? Ch- Chan? Ch- the blue guy? Mavic Chen. Mavic Mavic Chen, yeah. Chen, yeah, yeah, from yeah. Um, what the Daleks master plan. He also like you know in the black and white he looks is like really offensive, and then somebody's like, well, he's blue. It's like, oh, <laughs> I guess that makes it better just knowing. Again, we're not sure if you were supposed so he to be been blue, blue, but we'll just say you know Mavic Chen is blue. <laughs> we know he was painted blue. <laughs> Jano didn't read like blackface to me, but we also only have production stills that look like. Yeah. Yeah. So this is also one of our behind-the-scenes things. This is our first time, and certainly not the last time, that a quarry is used in place of an alien world. You'll see plenty of those in the future. It is almost astonishing that it took us three years to get to this point. (laughs) (laughs) So some of our important people behind the scenes. Our director is Christopher Barry who's directed several stories by this point. And our writer is a guy named Ian Stewart Black. Uh, Black is a British novelist, playwright, and scriptwriter who also studied philosophy, so a lot going on with him. In 1960, he'd been a writer on and associate producer of the show Danger Man, and he'd written a number of other TV dramas before and since. He was apparently a regular viewer of Doctor Who, and his children didn't really consider him a for-real TV writer because he had yet to have a Doctor Who writing credit. 
One day, he was working next door to the Doctor Who production office, so he decided to stop in and say, hey, guys, you want a script? And based solely on his reputation, they immediately said, yes, 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 we do. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I know a couple more things, actually. Uh, Firstly, on Dangerman, which became secret agent in the U.S. and is where Patrick McGowan became famous and led to the prisoner. Basically, there are sort of a lot of argument about exactly how much he basically created that show. There's a named creator who's someone else. And they brought in as a consultant on uh, how to make this a good TV show everyone wants to watch uh, a guy named Ian, but Fleming. And he (laughs) proved useless to work with in a television setting and I think might have died not long after that. And uh, they replaced him with Ian Stewart Black, who is sort of was apparently had the reputation for half creating, half saving that show mm. and making it a hit. And then when he came to Doctor to the Doctor Who offices, they didn't commission it. But Wiles and Donald Tosh were just so thrilled that a famous TV writer was coming in and offering to give them scripts that they were. That they, this is basically the only moment of joy those two men knew in the entire <laughs> time they were in those offices. And the preliminary outline. They didn't commission it, but they got an outline for the first draft of the story, and they they were really, really happy with it and left it on the top of the pile for their successors as, yeah, just trust us on this one. <laughs> you know, it's really funny that we're talking about how lauded this script was. Uh, because, and, you know, the peek behind the curtain for our listeners, we were talking briefly right before the show I, I went over notes and, and tried to review the synopsis of um, of this particular serial because we had watched it about a week ago uh, initially for the first run through and darned if I didn't forget most of it, <laughs> like important plot points and stuff like that. I mean, I watched it half an hour ago and I'm already like, oh, it's so fuzzy. It's gone. <laughs> but but it's funny that we're talking about how like amazing the scriptwriter was because like shortly after ingesting this it's just floated out of my memory. Well, I mean it just remind I mean you said they left it for their successors. It kind of reminds me of like the whole like John Adams Thomas Jefferson you know, transition where he's like, I'm just going to appoint a bunch of people that hate everything about you right before I leave office. <laughs> like it's um I mean it's interesting. I can promise you this writer can and will do better, but um yeah, it, it it isn't helped by the telesnaps. The telesnaps really make it more difficult for this one to stick in the memory. Uh, this the first time I ever I th- it may have been the first reconstruction I ever watched years and years ago. And when I came back to watch it again for this, I had forgotten everything I enjoyed about it pretty completely, and most of the other stuff too. It it does not. You remember the quarry and you don't actually spend that much time there. I mean, I will admit I briefly, briefly, like I picked, I guess I picked the wrong video and I got the one that was, you know, about, I got about two or three minutes into one of those like uh, CGI reconstructions. I was like, oh no, no, (laughs) no, I didn't. No, thank you. And then (laughs) I like deliberately added the words loose cannon to my search. (laughs) Well, you know, let's hope that you enjoy his next story better because his next story is literally the next story. Oh, he'll wow. be our first writer to write back-to-back serials. Cool. <laughs> yeah, the, the next story, the next story was a script that was falling apart, and the other author, who was in theory there, 
had made a complete mess of it because probably of the transition between production teams. And so they just handed it to the guy who was around the office saying, can you fix this? <laughs> well, that that brought me to, that answered my next question, which was going to be whether it was like originally considered yeah. to be the, the next one in line after his story. Because that would have been fairly interesting too to write one story and then have the next one that flows into it. The show already does that to an extent. But sometimes tonally it can be quite different between yeah. stories. Trying to think how long it's going to be before that happens again. Mm. And I I think it's about 13 years. But yeah, and our uh, music for this story is done by a guy named Raymond Jones, whose name is Raymond Jones. I had hoped we'd say something about it because there's <laughs> a lot of fiddling. Yeah, I mean, the music is interesting and, you know, I think he had at least partially an orchestra do some of that. So, yeah, I mean, it is a decent uh, musical score to this one. Our cast members here, we as Jano, we have a guy named Frederick Yeager. He's another one of those British actors with just a ton of movie and TV credits. And, yeah, he spends half our story basically doing a William Hartnell impersonation. And not a bad one. Oh, yeah, well. Doing a good job. It's not a great one. But it's good. It's perfectly passable. It it does not let the story down. He definitely gets the, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I read that he was coached by Hartnell. Yeah. And I guess I think that's really funny because like some of the mannerisms he does, like I just imagine Hartnell being like, no, you need more. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it generated some discussion uh, during our, our watch through about whether they were preparing for Hartnell's departure, because at this point he's in fairly poor health. Um, and they must have been thinking about the future of the show. Um, do we know if there was any of that? It's hard to say. The view of every commentator on the show, everyone writing, you know, essays about it and things like that is that, yes, that's absolutely true. And the view of all historians is that, no, this is the first of three stories with location filming in a row and they didn't have a timing schedule. So he, he couldn't be at the rehearsals for that episode. They didn't give him any lines because he was off filming the next story before he could learn them. Possibly both, but a lot of it has yep. to do with, yeah, his schedule. But it could also just be a proof of concept thing that they on how they decide to handle it. We don't know I, for I sure. meant more of, you know... Um, Hartnell coaching others uh, with his mannerisms and that sort of thing to take over the mantle of the doctor. And I thought the the uh, actor, first of all, who um, who played Jano was pretty good um, and his impression was very good. So the thing about Frederick Yeager is that he is one of those actors that you only realize you've seen in a thousand things in retrospect. He looks totally different every time he's in Doctor Who and every time I remember seeing him in anything else. Like the first Joan Hickson, Miss Marple, he is like the chief constable of police who's in that story a lot. And unless you specifically look and realize it's the same guy it's impossible to know it he's, he's even like the shape of his head changes every time <laughs> i mean that's that's some christian bale level dedication right there kinda so yeah the other person whose name i have noted here is tony holland who had a small role as a um assistant and yeah, he's basically just important because he'll go on to be one of the creators of the British uh, soap EastEnders. And that's about all I have to say about that guy. <laughs> um, so the guy who plays Chow, the leader of the uh, of the people out in the wilds, 
is an actor called Ewan Solon, who was the biggest name in the story at the time it aired, because he was uh, in, in the BBC Maygray series. He was Maygray's deputy, Luca, who's a fairly big role. And he was a fairly well-known actor then, even if you're not going to recognize him now. And certainly weren't going to recognize him in this story. He he actually drew press attention to the set and things like that. But he was, you know, wandering around in so much makeup that uh, he apparently would forget it was on. And at one point he got a lift. He gave someone a lift when he was driving along only for this hitchhiker to freak out at the realization that someone in cartoonish old man makeup had picked him up. Uh, <laughs> this is, this is the only funny story about the making of this serial. And I'm sorry. I haven't got any more of those. No, that's pretty good though. I mean, I, I had assumed that he was playing much older than he really was. And I, I had attributed some of this to the, the story itself. Um, as we already alluded to, you know, you have, um, with the overall plot, you know, um, we have one group kind of sucking the life force from another group. Yeah. And as he belongs to who the city folk call savages and had obviously been drained once before, I thought, I wasn't sure if it was just that he was their elder or to show how bad a case of... (laughs) <laughs> having his vitality sucked away because it basically turned him into a palpatine yeah it palpatine indeed it did indeed it he he really looks like he's about to start the episode by saying it's every time you see him <laughs> <laughs> he's a wizened old corn husk of a man yeah Oh, fun thing. Uh, the next time you and Solon and Frederick Yeager are in Doctor Who, they're both in the same story and it's going to be like a decade away. <laughs> All right. So let's move on to uh, our episode run through. No episode title. So I guess we're just in episode one where in the TARDIS, the doctor's saying they're in a future age of prosperity and outside we see a random caveman. Outside of the TARDIS, the Doctor's looking around as the others are left to wait by the TARDIS, where Stephen's complaining about the Doctor just going off alone to do his science and making them wait. Dodo tells him that, you know, you don't have to do everything you're told. You're a man. Where are you? Her taunting leads Stephen to go and look around and call out for the Doctor. While he's gone, Dodo sees a caveman ready to attack, and of course she screams. Stephen rushes over, and after hearing that Dodo saw a a savage from the Stone Age, decides that the doctor must have been wrong about where they were. The doctor, meanwhile, is off taking readings, talking to himself as the tribe of gum is watching him from the bushes. (laughs) (laughs) This <laughs> is the tribe of gum too. Yeah. <laughs> I assume refuse to be electric boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> the cavemen wonder if he's one of the leaders and they decide that they should just kill him. Like you do. Yeah, of course. The doctor calls out and tells them to come out from under there and two guards with extremely goofy looking helmets appear. Our guards are named Edal and Exorce. And they say that they're there to welcome him. It's an honor to have him visit their planet. Guy sounds like a multimedia player. 
<laughs> X-Source? I, I just got the latest version of X-Source, and it just won't play AVIs. <laughs> and every everything he says is just such a classic X-Sourceism. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah. Up until this point, I th- always thought that an X-Source was called Glue. We can only make fun of his right. name. Because <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, we're just going to either edit this out is... or we're just going to let everybody cringe <laughs> with us. You're not hey. alone? Good gracious, no. Where uh, did you expect me to be? We've had no information about your companions. Oh, they're very pleasant, yes. Apparently, the elders have been observing the traveler from beyond time for many light years, and they estimated his arrival quite a while ago. You know, I can't help but but be a little confused by all of this, because... Really? <laughs> well, I mean, the doctor knows where they are. You assume that he's been there before. I mean, he knows there's smart people in this section of the galaxy, I think he says at one point. Section of the galaxy? This is Earth, is it not? No. 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 This is just people who happen to look human and who happen to have heard of the Doctor and think, this guy sounds great. Hope he doesn't ask into our way of life too deeply. Yeah. (laughs) So, I I need to back up a little bit here. This is where I I just get a little bit confused. We, We already have Steven. It's yes. not made clear that these are not humankind. I I was trying to figure out exactly where it falls. What, the in helmets the didn't tip you off. Well, yeah, obviously we're in we're we're further in the future, but I assume that this is further in the future even than Stephen. But no, this isn't Earth at all. It's just some nameless planet, and it's it. They sort of vaguely imply hundreds of millions of years and far off. I mean, like this what is are you the expecting? Far, far future. Makeup to make them look like aliens. What is this Star Trek? That kind of budget. I mean, we've already got one person where the makeup is being used to make him look like a Muppet. (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, no, the um, these people on this planet have been tracking the Doctor and waiting for him. They're shocked to learn, however, that he's traveling with other people. So, yeah, they uh, haven't been paying that much attention, I guess. Yeah, and which also they mentioned like three times and it means nothing, right? Like there's no plot relevance to it, right? They're, <laughs> yeah. they're just like, oh, we didn't expect you to come with people. Why not? Uh, uh, I mean, we just didn't expect it. It's weird. Really? Why? Like <laughs> perhaps they had, perhaps they had always intended to drain the doctor from the time they started tracking him. And additional travelers with him would have complicated matters. Hmm. Interesting. Either that or they're just fanboys who've just had their headcanon challenged and are going to resent right, it. Right. Yes. We didn't know you were going to show up to the convention with people. Yeah. <laughs> that that seems fairly likely. They it, it is kind of interesting how much reverence they have for this guy they've never met. Yes. But yeah, they basically tell him, You're coming with us to the city to meet the elders. You're going to come with the captain, Adol, and X-Horse is going to go around and find his friends. So Adol and an X-Horse bring yep. the doctor to the capital. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Back at the TARDIS, Stephen's wondering if Dodo is just seeing things until a spear is thrown at them. And uh, they run back toward the TARDIS, pursued by savage spears. Dodo screams when she sees X-Horse's terrible helmet. He welcomes them, 
assures them that this is not the Iron Age and there is civilization. And he asks them to return to the city with him. We we need to take just a moment to celebrate the loose cannon reconstructions. Amazing work making those spears move. That that was that was something special. <laughs> that was at least five minutes in like keynote or a PowerPoint. Yeah, it's tough, tough business. Boom, boom, boom. The dynamism of it really draws you into the story. Yes. What were we doing again? <laughs> This is my RV, you see. This is my reacting vibrator. So the doctors led to the elders and their leader, Jano. The doctors told that they've been waiting for him and they want him to become one of their high elders as two women dress him in elder robes. He is, after all, the greatest expert in the galaxy in time-space exploration. The doctor, for his part, States he always knew there was a great race out here, and, you know, he'd meant to come at some point. I don't want to, to spend too much time on this, but I am going to point out that you, like, blithely blew past the doctor talking about his reacting vibrator, and it does make <laughs> me a little bit upset that we didn't spend at least a moment on that Yeah. One. And well, they certainly spent more than a couple of moments on that thing. Like they're like, "What's that? Is that a weapon? No, it's my vibrator thing." Oh, what's it? Oh, it's it, I use it for my science. No one cares. Oh my god! Like they don't <laughs> even like. Why do we have to have paragraphs of script about this friggin' thing? This society is not built of people who care about the details. You can also tell when Jano is introducing his royal court or whatever to the doctor, he then moves his arms to show, hey, and here are all the other high elders of our societies. We will not mention their names or see them again. It's just a bunch of generic men hanging around who are not relevant. Yep. Welcome these speechless cameo parts behind me. Goodbye, people. They won't be back. Nope. So, yeah, Steven and Dodo are brought in. And, yeah, Jano admits, yeah, we didn't know about you guys, but uh, here are some random gifts. Have this dagger and a mirror. (laughs) (laughs) Idal, meanwhile, is annoyed that the elders are trusting these strangers as he and Exorus go back on patrol. They're watched by three savages who go to warn their people that the hunters are out. Steven and Dodo are taken on a tour by Flower and Avon. Such great names for these uh, city folk. Hey, it's a forward-looking science fiction story being aired in the 60s. Someone's going to be named Flower. It just happens every time. Groovy. Uh, They mention that everything down to the temperature is controlled, Though Flower would like to feel real things like wind and sunshine You know, so she can photosynthesize. (laughs) (laughs) There are essays online about this story that will take that exact line and offer you- No, there aren't. And they will take you a history of the SF works that were very clearly things that the author had read 10 years before that he'd have remembered. (laughs) It all went into the cauldron of themes that is this. Yeah, I I did enjoy like that. I was like, oh, are they going to take this like a Logan's Run kind of place where like, you know, like there's nope, none of that. Not at all. That's it. We haven't seen the outside. Boy, let's not talk about that again. Yeah. They do let Dodo and Steven know that everything they have is due to one simple scientific discovery to give them all greater talent and intellect. 
But that's something best discussed by the elders and the doctor. Well, gentlemen, I can't just sit here in all these grand clothes without asking a few questions. After all, there's my reputation to think about. What do you mean, Doctor? Well, if I accept your gifts, I must endorse your life. But I, I can't do that without knowing something about you. But surely you know a great deal about her. Yes, I know very well that you're far advanced than most planets. But uh, how you achieve this, I know not. And let's face it, gentlemen, you are much advanced. Now, I would like to know how. Meanwhile, the doctor's talking with Jano. And the doctor lets Jano know that he can accept his gifts without knowing more about their way of life. They've achieved such a high level of civilization, and he'd like to know how. I liked that, if I'm being honest. You know, like, he's like, oh, this is very nice, very nice indeed. How'd you get all that stuff? And, um, <laughs> wh- you know, you're this energy you've got? Let's, let's, let's dig down on that a little bit more. Like, from, it just, I don't know, it, it, it kind of makes it clear, like, later in the episode, because you, you think that he's just full, too fully trusting and everything, but it does make it clear later when he was like, nah, I was suspicious of these guys. Yeah. All while appealing to clearly the worst case of hubris even he's seen in a while. Yeah. <laughs> so outside, Nanina, a female savage, is hiding from the guards at a ravine. She tries to move, but lodges a rock and alerts the guard. Exorce fires at her, and she's trapped by his ridiculously large light gun, which he uses to control her like a puppet. Chal, the elderly savage, appears and calls for Exorce to take him instead, but he's just ignored. Meanwhile, we have that fancy fiddling music playing in the background. All these scenes are intercut with Jano telling the doctor that they've learned to transfer the energy of life directly into themselves. They store this life energy that they take, and they use it when a member of their community needs it. And with it, they can make people braver, stronger, faster. They have the technology. For this to be effective, it has to be a very special form of animal vitality, however. You'll see the advantages and the perfection of our race. I mean, come on, that just sounds like extremely Aryan, ubermensch thinking. All mixed in with the uh, with the same thinking that made people inject monkey glands into themselves fifty years earlier. <laughs> I what what I wasn't quite able to uh, latch onto. Can they extend their life indefinitely with this technology? I mean, they don't. It's not said, but who knows. It could be a thing. It's at least implied at one point, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it would have been it would have been nice to kind of state it outright. Right. Because then this is probably not too much a spoiler alert, but like, you know, the system's got to go. And, you know, it would have given it a bit more dramatic weight if it was if somebody was like, well, I guess I've got to die. You know, I guess, you know, we've had enough time here with our wicked ways or whatever. Uh, but no, they don't really they don't really go that route either. They totally could have, and that would have been that would have been totally cool. This does tie into one particular thing about this story, which is that no one dies in it. Yeah. Yes, mm. that's true. The, the, almost all Doctor Who stories where no one dies, it's either because there aren't any other characters or the <laughs> people involved aren't actually real, like in the Celestial Toymaker. And even yeah. then that's a that's a cop out. Here, <laughs> no one dies. 
Yeah, no dings. It's a dingless story. I hadn't thought about that. There, there is a lot of tension, though. In fact, I, oh, I would, yeah. I would argue that we have maybe more tension in this than than other serials. The the, the fact that you've got these two rogue cops off kidnapping people and and, and take them to the to the life draining rooms is enough of a threat of physical jeopardy that you, they almost get away with the fact that there actually aren't that many dangerous stakes when you actually boil it down. That reminds me too, I wanted to say that the editing was good. Even like just kind of not understanding what was going on, at least the editing was significant there, right? Where they're like, they're walking, like they're cutting, you know, this description. Yeah, we've, you know, we've got great life-saving technology with like this guy like forcibly walking somebody into it into like a, a laboratory and i was like oh they're they're sucking people life that's yep. where this is going okay mm-hmm. you know it was good it was good suggestion good foresighting they're making some soylent green well, yeah more or less soylent mist yes is that what they end up doing yeah it's like i forget i've already forgot i watched this 20 minutes ago <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. So back on the tour, Flower is telling Team Dodo that life is very happy here. They can go everywhere except outside the city. But let's not talk about that and the people ever, who live out there. Yeah, ever again. Order the sinister secret rooms you shouldn't think about ever again. <laughs> exactly. See, this was more reason why I my mind had gone to World War II. It's like the people in the city know that there's bad stuff going on. But they're like, eh. And apart from Jano and the two cops, they're all really middle class about their complicity in this. Yeah. The, the, everything that, the, that these two giving the tour say has the feeling of a domestic argument with something malignant behind it. Yeah. And the guys running the draining rooms are really, really snarky to the cops. And they're just extremely middle class people trapped in dull jobs who don't want to be there. There's a kitchen sink drama trying to break out at weird <laughs> points in this. There's there's also like, and, and I'm telegraphing a little bit here, but there's like a level of unprofessionalism as well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's it's both like very efficient and pretty sloppy. Yeah, it's like, uh We're just going to leave this drained savage to like stumble. Right. <laughs> Rest and vest. Like, you know. Apart from Jano and the and the two extremely unpleasant cops, everybody in this story doesn't really want to be in it. They're all going, oh, the whole time. But yeah, as the tour is continuing, Dodo happens to catch a glimpse of Nanina being brought into the city. She tells Steven, who of course thinks she's just being a Dodo and ignores her, but Dodo's very suspicious about how their guides are, you know, being very careful about what they're allowed to see. Meaning that once again, Dodo is the smart one in this pairing. Exorce takes Nanina into a lab filled with horribly incessant beeping sounds, where a couple scientists already have a restrained cave person. They've transferred a bunch of his energy and are now about to release him back into the wild. Nanina's prepped for the next extraction as she pleads with the doctors. On their tour, Dodo spots Exorce exiting from the door to the science lab and she decides to sneak off and go inside. 
She sneaks down a hallway and runs into a savage who stumbles and lurches toward her zombie-like. And Dodo screams! End of episode! But this is what I'm saying about the professionalism. (laughs) Yeah, you can't just let these husks roam around. I mean, what is this, right? They were so much more efficient than the giver. I mean, there's just a a real sense that Dodo has never encountered another human being in a corridor before. (laughs) And and that this concept is so new and shocking to her, it merits terror. Yeah, I mean, she's a teenager from the 60s, too. Like, she's got to see people whacked out on stuff before. (laughs) How has she never seen a homeless man who seems drunk before? It's really really odd that she immediately leaps leaps mentally to space vampires well (laughs) i don't know if she leapt to that or if it's just like the juxtaposition of like utopia with this like gibbering stumbling hairy (laughs) cave drunk you know There is a lot of genre shorthand to this. There are a lot of, yeah, you've read these books, adults, and the kids won't care. So we're not going to bother fleshing that <laughs> part out. That's a very good way to put it. Kieran, I, I also can't help but, like, my mind just goes back to the second serial ever. Alex. And and Barbara being, like, trapped in that corridor, which I felt was handled a little bit better. I mean, like, that's the well, same yeah. type of episode ending cliffhanger. Wait, wasn't that Christopher Berry again? Yes, I believe director. it was. Yes. <laughs> huh. That those resonated with you for a reason it turns out. Mm. <laughs> but what can have happened to her? I cannot think. Perhaps she's playing a joke. What do you mean? She may be hiding. Just a game. Oh, not even Dodo would be as stupid as that. Something must have happened to her. So yeah, we move on to episode 2, also called The Savages, part 2. Uh the savage continues lurching forward. And then just keeps going past her. He's dazed, unaware of anything, and collapses just before the door outside. So Dodo, being a decent human being, helps him go outside, where Chal and Tor are waiting. I can't help but note that Tor means gate in German, so it's uh, it's nice that he's at the gate. Also, think about Tor. He is the angry idiot on the uh, on the downtrodden side of this equation, and he is played by an actor named Patrick Godfrey, who is 89 as of about two days ago and still working, and in so many movies in tiny parts. He was the vicar who'd turn up in so many different Merchant Ivory movies. He has a list as long as your arm and a really distinctive-looking face. And here, he's basically playing a Viking who isn't very bright. And he's in a lot of this story and completely unmemorable other than the fact he's called Tor. See, I just can't help but wonder if Tor is a hunter from the future. That's a joke for people who know really obscure science fiction movies, especially Yor, the hunter from the future. <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I just assumed his last name was Johnson. <laughs> the door closes and Dodo continues to investigate the corridor and ends up listening in as the scientists begin to extract Nanina's essence. That sounds so much worse when you say it that it way. Ba- it basically sounds like Barbarella when I say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Back on the tour, everyone's trying to figure out where Dodo's gone now. 
Flowers suggests maybe she's just hiding, playing a game. And Steven says not even Dodo would be as stupid as that. My assumption is that she's gone the way of the Dodo. (laughs) Ding for Dodo. I don't want to spoil anything, but I promise you, someday we will get to companion characters whose defining quality isn't exclusively, they can't possibly be this stupid. (laughs) We'll get to that point. Bear with us. (laughs) The doctor is still talking with Jano, and Steven rushes in to tell him that the dodo's missing. The doctor just says, well, she could look after herself. He wants to finish this very interesting conversation that he's having. What evidence has he had that would suggest that's true? (laughs) What evidence? Well, we'll talk about some other things later that the doctor seems to uh, decide is possible. In the lab, Dodo looks around a bit not even trying to hide her presence before she's grabbed because she's basically just standing there, gape-jawed, looking around this lab. The scientists decide that, despite her weird clothing, she has to be one of those cave people from outside, and they prepare her for transference. I mean, just look at the expression on her slack-jawed face. I think that it's like really very intentional on the part of the writer to have like them setting upon. I realize the first person that we see drained is an elderly man, but two like kind of youngish guys basically assaulting two women in a row is not coincidence. No, it doesn't feel like coincidence either. It feels intentionally i mean they're going to a place that i don't think any children's show would now but it's definitely intentional right this is meant to feel incredibly creepy and violatory Mm -hmm. so dodo begins to fight back which is something they haven't experienced before with these cave people she threatens to smash up their equipment leading the head scientist to tell everyone not to move she could kill them all Steven, his tour guides, and Captain Adol are searching for her, and when Adol learns where she vanished, he opens the concealed door and then insists it's nothing, don't pay attention to this door that I just opened. Because we needed a few gothic cliches to set up (laughs) this town. Steven insists that if there's a door that is hidden and that you definitely should not go through, Dodo will definitely try to enter the forbidden door. When Steven tries to go through it, Adol draws his weapon and says that he'll go in and search for the girl. But you're not going to find her and shoot her, right, Adol? Right? Back in the lab, the scientists learn that she's with the doctor. Adol enters and asks what the girl has seen. They believe that she hasn't really seen much of anything, so she's taken out while the scientists unstrap Nanina. Note that they have to wait a while before extracting from this one again and take her to be released back into the world. They practice catch and release. That's that's a distressing detail. Yeah. You'd assume they'd tag them, you know, around their ankle, ear, something like that. Well, I mean, they can can tell which ones have been, you know, they're the wrinkly ones. Yeah, they're the Palpatine-looking ones. Right. If if they've been Palpatine, they've probably been drained multiple yeah, times. It's like, oh no 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 no, throw that one back. That one's that one's a that one's all wrinkly. Oh, this one's got so much pancake on. 
Dodo's brought back to the group, where she tells them all that she was attacked by a mad scientist. Something that Flower calls ridiculous. You probably just found one of our hospitals. When questioned by a doll, Dodo says she didn't really see anything. She just had a bad feeling about the place. And Stephen assures them that Dodo's always just imagining things. You know, these women. A doll orders Flower and Avon to wait there. They're going to be taken to the elders for their negligence in allowing this to happen. And Flower begins to ask Avon if they'll take... And he assures her, no, don't worry, that's just for the savages. This is a free state. We're all equal here. They can't harm us. They're light gunned, taken away by a guard, and never seen again. We assume. <laughs> yeah. While a doll takes Dodo and Steven to the council chamber. Free state being another particularly loaded term. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anytime something has to insist that it's a free state, it probably isn't. In the elders chamber, Dodo tries to tell the doctor what happened, but he says he can't listen right now. He's just had a very interesting discussion with Jano, and he needs to go back to the TARDIS to get some documents. He suggests that Steven comes along to help him carry things, and Dodo should as well, so that, she, so that we can keep an eye on her. After they go, a doll tells Jano that the girl didn't understand anything that she might have seen, and Jano says that as for the doctor, it's impossible to tell what he's thinking and it would be wise to keep an eye on him. Our crew head back toward the TARDIS, with a doll tailing them from a distance. Here, the doctor lets his companions know that he doesn't quite trust the elders, which is why he cut off Dodo's story. He hasn't learned much, but he knows that there's something off here. This is an interesting place in the story, I thought, because we know that there are two more episodes coming up but the doctor is just ready to nope on out of here. At least that's the impression that I got. So one interesting thing is that because they've switched to full story titles, the listings would now be saying that something is part one of four, part two of four. Rather oh, that's than interesting. Before, the audience would not have known how long the story was going to be until it was over. Whereas now, because they're giving things a title, they are treating them as more finite, discrete serials and things like the radio. So they're telegraphing to the audience. Yeah. So the audience would have known that, too, which is interesting. Not helpful, really, but interesting. No, no, that that but that is interesting because watching all of these now because of the recordings that we're doing, we break things up into serials. We don't just watch straight through and comment on each episode. You know, we've broken these into set stories, but your average viewer may not have been thinking of them in this way. So I thought that that's an interesting way to talk about, like the, the idea of the serial has really become much more of a, an overt thing at this point. Yeah, it's definitely a concrete thing now and, you know, possibly changes the way that people would have consumed these just because they know now have more information, I guess, than you're, they did You're before. not going to probably have another instance uh, like we have uh, right before the Daleks master plan 
where we have like a weird little one-off episode, an entire serial, and then another serial that ties into that one-off. Yeah, or just think about something like the arc where they leave halfway through and you're not expecting the story to continue. Right, right. But now in a situation like this, you now know, oh, this is a four-part story, so something's going to be weird here. Yeah, exactly. Why the concern, Doctor? They're only savages. They are men, human beings, like you and me. Although it appears at the moment that you're behaving in a rather subhuman fashion. They have not developed like we have. They are savages. So, along the way, they find the body of a savage in the bushes. Well, not a body, as it starts to move. It's the man that Dodo saw and screamed about in the corridor earlier. Old husky. Yep. (laughs) And the doctor says it's exactly as he feared. This civilization is based on absorbing the life force of other people. He sends Stephen and Dodo to grab some medicine capsules from the TARDIS. As the doctor tends to the man, a doll appears and says that I wouldn't worry about that savage. He's probably faking. And he starts telling the, quote, lazy animal to get back to its reserve. The doctor argues with him. And when Adal says he's only a savage, the doctor says they are men like you and me, though at the moment you're behaving in a rather subhuman fashion. Adal takes out his light gun and forces the doctor to return with him to the city. Soon after, Dodo and Steven return and they find the doctor gone. They give the capsules to the savage and Tor and Chal appear. Tor's ready to kill them, but Charles stops him. If we kill people from the city, what will the guards do to our people? But the man they've just helped, Wilda, ends the discussion by coming to and telling the others not to harm them. These people are friends. The girl helped me out of the city, and the old man just spoke out against what they do to us. The guards took him back to the city for trying to protect me. So I want to point out one little thing about this, which is there's kind of a sea change in in the way Doctor Who is now addressing its plot points, which is that instead of spinning out the misunderstanding, they clear it up immediately. They would much rather talk about the themes of the story and move things along than kill time by having a misunderstanding. Sometimes those will be padded out for a whole cliffhanger and half an episode afterwards mm-hmm. under you know previous regimes. Here, they are trying to cut to the chase for the first time. Yep, until they get back to telling six-part stories anyways. It, it also is nice to see the Doctor's idealism. You know, like, I don't know. I I don't know why I keep on thinking back to our very early episodes where, you know, like the humanity of the doctor. I mean, he's not human, first of all, but like he has a he has more of a, a reverence for humanity than a lot of the other characters in the serials at, at this point. Something about him, him talking back to Adol there. <laughs> Uh, got me. It's it's always nice to have reminders of just how far this version of the Doctor under William Hartnell has come yeah. because his arc's not quite done yet. There are a few tiny steps before he's the Doctor as in the protagonist of this series in the public memory. But he's getting very close. Well, that's what a, in, in previous serials, you might have had one of the companions deliver a line like that. But now the doctor is doing so, and I think it's notable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you not realize 
that all progress is based on exploitation? Exploitation indeed! This, sir, is protracted murder! We have achieved a very great deal merely by the sacrifice of a few savages! The sacrifice of even one soul is far too great! In the council chamber, Jano asks how the doctor could condemn their civilization over some wretched barbarians. The doctor tells him that he will oppose them just like he opposes the Daleks and other menaces to common humanity. When Jano tells him, you know, guy, you're being very unscientific here. You're standing in the way of progress. The doctor is predictably very indignant and angry. Jano reminds him that all progress is based on exploitation and all they've had to sacrifice are some mere savages. The doctor tells him that the sacrifice of even one soul is far too great and they must end this practice. Jano's had enough of this conversation and has him taken away. He has the guards tell the head scientist Senta that he'll be sending the lab some very special instructions. In the lab, Senta is surprised when the doctor's brought in, and Idal tells him to prepare for an emergency transference. The doctor, not getting it quite yet, insists that he's not going to bear witness to these experiments, and Captain Adal informs him, no, but you'll be, imp- uh, you'll be participating in one. As Jano enters, Senta realizes what's going on, and he insists that it's impossible. We can't transfer such a high form of life. Also, he's a fellow scientist, one of us. Oh, man, I was so waiting for Senta and the other lab tech to, you know, like, rise up against this totalitarian government, and we don't get it. Nope. (laughs) They're just crushed by the banality of their jobs. Mm. Yeah, because Senta's objection does not last long. And as the doctor is strapped to a gurney, and then the transference goes on for like five minutes as random numbers are thrown about and the episode comes to an end. That's number wang. Yeah. (laughs) So we move on to episode three. And yeah, as was noted earlier, even though we don't see Hartnell a lot in this episode, he's not on vacation He was just busy during all the rehearsals, filming, location shooting for the next story. So, yeah, they basically, he was given minimal, uh, a minimal role for this episode. That said, you do feel his presence. It makes a big difference from all those stories where they just have him be unconscious in a closet somewhere for a week. (laughs) And then when the plot needs him to, the cliffhanger can be, we've opened this closet door. What's that? (laughs) So... We we can get into this a little bit more, but, you know, all throughout the end of the last episode and the beginning of this episode, I couldn't help but think, surely someone will come save the doctor. No, we have to accept the, the grim reality that he's never going to get better. And this is just how things are now. Look, we need to move on before we all start trying to think of draining puns that would have been the episode title if it had had one. <laughs> well, I mean, Charles does say that he'll never be the same again. So one imagines that they clearly are not going to allow this to take place. I actually thought it was a shocking subversion of the audience's expectations to to allow that to happen. Not only that, but what they're actually planning to do with it is 
the best idea in this story and they hide it quite well you got a fair ways along before you realize oh that's where they're going with this we'll we'll talk about whether it was the best or not i have mixed feelings (laughs) on it i'm not saying the competition is that fierce this time (laughs) back in the lab center reports to jano that the transfer was perfect We should be able to use him again after some time, so our experiment seems to be going well. And Jano notes, hey, we could also use his friends, and he sends out Captain Adol to collect them. Meanwhile, Jano has decided that the doctor's life energy should only be transferred into one person. I mean, draining someone as advanced as the doctor is really experimental after all. So Jano is the one who's going to be willing to take that risky in-transference for himself. Noble of him. Yep, very noble. They they really do, you know, dance around the fact that he's just outright a despot. That this is all an exercise in narcissism. <laughs> So outside, uh, Stephen and Dodo are taken to the valley where the, where the savages live in the surrounding caves, like animals. Stephen tries to start a Vicky-esque rebellion, telling them that they have to fight or they'll always suffer. But Chal just tells him, well, it's clear you've never had to face the light guns, so rebellion failure. Is this also the point where they comment on, like, how nice the caves are, though? When they get into the caves, yeah. There's actually, like, some question of whether or not that was to appease the place that had caves that they were filming in, because there are some shots that are set caves and some of them that are real caves. (laughs) (laughs) And the suggestion that the line about how nice the caves are is one that is either there to make the set designers happy or to make the people who <laughs> you know, run the caves happy. I'm not really sure. I don't remember which specific one it's in reaction to. Wow, these caves are really nice. Come to Carlsbad Caves. Yeah. Just off I-95. Now, the main tourist caves in England, which you are going to see more than once you know in this. Doctor Who, are called Wookie Hole. <laughs> That's W-O-O-K-E-Y hole. You're going to see them again. Great. So now we're talking about a Wookiee's hole. And the doctor's vibrator. Yeah. Either that or the League of Gentlemen sketch about about the cave tour guide. And in 1974, you couldn't move down here for Cybermen. Our ancestors were great artists. As time passes, we are less able to do such things. Most of our talents are being taken from us. Only our faith remains, and that they will never change. So Tor tells the pair that the guards are hunting specifically for them, and they've likely drained the doctor already. So, yep, too bad for him. They hear the guards entering the valley, and Chal decides to take them into the caves. Tor objects to this, saying, but they're not our people, and if the guards decide to follow them, you've pretty much destroyed our only place of refuge. But here they go into the caves, they comment on how nice they are, and Chal says, yes, our ancestors were great artists, but those talents have been taken from us. That was a cool little note. Only their faith remains, and they will never take that. Faith in what? 
Yeah, exactly. They, they, they never actually bother to establish exactly what these people are clinging to. Well, I mean, they're clinging to their, you know, wonderful cave system. Come on down. It's a uh, half price for the kids. <laughs> Watch out for the slippery bits. Yes. <laughs> you know, I can't help but kind of juxtapose because we've been to like this alabaster city you know like this utopian future the city on a hill right call it what it is and then like the caves are supposed to be just as spectacular but almost in a more human way like they've got like handmade art in them and that sort Mm -hmm. of thing it's not like such a sterile future yeah plus the city kind of betrays all of its inhabitants whereas the caves are actually they, they actually do protect these people. Mm-hmm. They actually are a part of who they are in a way that isn't really desperately fake, mm-hmm. unlike Malaysville. So it's like the a noble, the noble savage, noble, noble savage, savage trope. I mean, we were going to get there eventually, right? I'm getting angry. You might do something rash. Come on, soldier boy. What are you frightened of? You've got the gun. He will destroy us all. Uh, the guards corner Tor, who's still outside, and who points them towards the caves. So there goes Tor's objection. What if they go into our caves? I'll just let them know where they are. <laughs> As X outside the cave, Exorce demands that the strangers are brought out to him, and Chal begins leading the pair into the deeper passages. Exorce finally decides to enter and demands that they tell him where the strangers are. Nanina refuses but another scared savage points the way. When Nanina berates him for betraying everyone, he can only respond, but if I didn't, he would have taken me. Tor agrees, saying the strangers may have helped them, but what good is that if they make the leaders angry? Chal, Dodo, and Steven head deeper into the cave, talking about the fact that they shouldn't be talking because they're trying to hide. Finally, Stephen just responds to the guard's calls, telling him, come and get us. He's hoping to anger the guard into making some sort of mistake by taunting him not unlike a small child just learning what a taunt is. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little clumsy. I'm just going to get that guy with the paralysis gun to make a mistake. You know, (laughs) the guy with the gun that can paralyze it at Great distance. (laughs) Steven asks Chal how the light gun works, which probably would have been a good thing to know before he started this plan. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And learns that the beam is still effective when it's reflected. He asks Dodo for the mirror that she had been gifted earlier Uh and has the others hide on the floor. Uh, He continues taunting Exorce, and when Exorce fires, Steven reflects the light back onto his face. Exorce freezes and drops the gun, which Stephen grabs. He takes the guard prisoner, something that Chal describes as impossible. Not so much Chekhov's mirror as a very novice DM setting up a puzzle for the future. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's like, what What could we possibly use? How about that one anomalous object that we were given? Like. <laughs> Shawnee already knows this because uh, we we kind of had a chat going while we were watching. This is, I think, one of the places where this story first started to lose me. All of the cave foolishness just reminds me a little bit of the ordeal or something like that. <laughs> it, it really does drag on for quite a bit. 
And I found myself frustrated at the weapons that these folks use. I know exactly why. Like, they need a non-lethal method of getting the savages, again, using air quotes, back to the city and drain their essence. (laughs) But to be defeated by a mirror seems very (laughs) cheap. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there's lots of reflective stuff in the world. Maybe that's why they didn't want to go in the caves, right? I don't know. It's like there's water. It's shiny. I, it's just like it's it's. Why would you have a gun that uh, that can just bounce off of anything? Yeah. I mean that that's that's just most guns. <laughs> well, yeah, but they don't like. Okay. <laughs> now that you say it like that, but like still, uh, <laughs> right? Like, it, it, I mean, like generally the thing that I that I would point a regular gun at, like there's no there's very little chance it's going to come straight back directly yeah yeah i mean like or you know worse that like i will hit an errant like stream of water and be paralyzed right yeah i don't, I don't know i'm talking about this way too much let's move, <laughs> like, let's no. move you can destroy the people of the city they can destroy our enemies the strangers must be gods oh. Oh. When they get back out to the main cave, Tor declares that these strangers must be gods. They can destroy the people <laughs> of the city. Right. Oh. They oh. figured out that reflection reflects things. Yes. I'm trying to think if there's been a dumber person in the entire series <laughs> up to this point than Tor. Well, and isn't it painted like I, I maybe it was just the reconstruction that I saw, but I remember it being like an internal monologue, like David Lynch Dune, like he's like, Oh, the Quizard Sudarak is here. He reflected it back into his face or something. It was just like if that's your inner monologue, like how many times have you been through the drain machine? I guess is what I want to know. Well, <laughs> I I get the sense, especially knowing what we do now, and since we've already talked about it. So Stephen's going to be leaving us at the end of this serial. And I felt like, not that it was out of character that he'd do something that clever with the mirror, but <laughs> but uh, it, it it is like a great way to like make him the hero of this portion of the story uh, and kind of sets up his role th- that we have coming up. Yeah, because let's just say that normally Stephen is more of a tour than, say, a Barba or even an Ian mm-hmm. or even a Dodo when it comes to his thinking power. <laughs> it, it really does highlight the fact that Peter Purvis is much better at acting Stephen than anyone has been at writing him. Yeah. For the most part. Well, Steven and Dodo have kind of like traded being the dumb one for the last <laughs> few episodes, but this really is like a showcase of Steven, this particular serial. They're going to eventually figure out that it's not a good consistent thing to trade off being the dumb one and assign that permanently to specific characters in future. So back in the city, Senta decides that the doctors should be taken to one of the guest apartments to recover. He's very valuable to us, and we probably shouldn't release this random old man into the wild. Instead, let us take him to one of our two-star hotels. Yeah. Now that everyone else is gone, Senta prepares Jano for the in-transference. He's connected up, and the process begins. Back in the cave... Tor wants to just murder the captive guard, but Steven and Nanina insist that he's more useful alive if they're going to save the doctor. Tor insists it's too late for that old man, 
but Chell finally tells Tor to just be quiet. Stephen lays out his master plan for saving the doctor. Show me how to get into the city. I'll use the light gun. A bunch of question marks. Dodo and I save the doctor. And soon Chal leaves to take them to the city. Tor immediately begins beating Exorce with a stick, but Nanina stops him. When Exorce asks her why she saved him, Nanina says that it would do them no good to kill him. Thus begins maybe the weirdest romantic subplot in this entire <laughs> franchise. <laughs> a little awkward. At the passageway to the city, Team Dodo finds the guards are barely guarding, and Chal tells them that their people have been oppressed for so long, the guards have grown careless. Steven light guns him, Dodo gets herself a gun for the second straight story, and they hide the corpse. I mean, the perfectly alive unconscious guy in the bushes. <laughs> and Dodo and Steven head inside. You must rest, Jaina. I shall give instructions that you're not to be disturbed. Hmm. An excellent idea. After an experience like that, uh, one takes time to, uh, uh, to become adjusted. Uh, I suppose my, uh, my two young friends... Avon and Flower? Uh, good gracious, no, no, no. Uh, Stephen and, and, and Dodo, uh, the child with the ridiculous name. Back in the lab, the intransference is complete. Senta wordly revives the unconscious Jano, who is really out of it. Jano starts acting like the doctor and talking about the trouble with you people on this planet and his friends Steven and Dodo, until he composes himself and starts acting like Jano again. After Senta leaves, he becomes the doctor again and prepares to smash the machines until he drops the rod he grabbed and Jano wonders what is happening to me. Senta, meanwhile, is in a control room with a doll where they are watching Steven and Dodo go through the halls. Dodo has a feeling that something's wrong. Where's all the security? Steven, proving that he is still the dumb one, thinks that they probably thought one guard would be enough and just wants to keep going on with their plan. How does he think law enforcement works again? <laughs> <laughs> Look, they just have one guard guarding this highly secret lab that's the center of their entire civilization. And that could kill everyone if somebody gets in there and messes it up. <laughs> exactly. And that Chow has repeatedly said will be really dangerous to get into. That there are all kinds of risks, and we can't predict it. There won't be anything there, thinks Stephen, despite having been told the literal opposite. Yeah. So a doll contacts one of the guards and tells him to place the doctor's husk in the hallway as bait, an order that's heard by the doctor, Jano. Ahead of them, Team Idiot sees the doctor and they call out to him. And again, Dodo's the one that realizes that something definitely seems off here. When they head to go and get him, a doll has the doors shut on them. The guards release a gas into the room as the Dr. Jano watches from an empty control room. And the episode ends. So I think this is a moment to talk about one thing this story clearly believes in pretty intensely, which is that this is a very critical story of law enforcement tactics in the 60s. This is, you know, basically ending with them being slightly worse than tear gassed. And between all of it, it really feels like Ian Stewart Black is, you know, speaking either for himself or for, you know, close personal friends 
he he does not like police very much. I think Adal is the least pleasant character we've had in the whole series to date. <laughs> Everybody in this story is, you know, subservient to the particularly mean-spirited whims of a couple of cops. You know, you say that, and then I'm like, yeah, that could be the case. And then I remember that guy from the Crusade. <laughs> I can't remember oh, his yeah. name right now, but yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. No, <laughs> Which he, one? He's... I don't remember his name, but you know, the, the the main bad guy of the crusade. The guy who kidnaps Barbara. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. No, that guy, that guy sucked. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we had religious genocide a couple of stories ago and you end up disliking a doll a lot more. <laughs> The, the villain of this story stopped has stopped being the villain of this story at this point, and he is carrying on because it's what he well, does. Well, especially the intransference after the intransference. Though I have to say, I you know, looking back over these episodes, and we we're going to get to it sooner or later. This is where it really kind of derails for me. I I realize that this. This story has something really powerful to say about how an idea can spark and spread, you know, like through society, like a fire and, and that sort of thing. And I and I do like that thought. I just it it all feels a little clunky to me. This is, again, what I was saying about the writing. I the actor playing Jano does a great job. Like everybody's doing a, a decent job. I just felt like the the writing se- seemed a little off. The doctor seems to know that this was going to happen. If not, d- despite having no evidence to back up this theory, right? And maybe he didn't. And you know, like this this is just a happy accident. But he does kind of imply that he knew something like this may happen. He's very he's very very smug about the clever thing he let them drag <laughs> him away and do to him, despite not really wanting to be. And you know, I guess you could you could say he was bluffing. But then there's the other question of uh, why then wouldn't some of the morality of these noble savage characters that we've been introduced to have been trans- transferred gradually over time into the society of the utopia? And they're not presented as particularly noble universally. Chal is and Nanina is, but Tor is murderously right. unpleasant. The, the big problem, I, I get what your, your concern is, and I think I would sort of view it as this is a story whose script sincerely believes in the message that they have toned down several times and made so vague that you're not 100% sure what the message is. <laughs> well put. I would well also put. argue that there's a big difference between, you know, super advanced alien the doctor and any of the people on this planet, whether it's his companions, the cave people, the elders, or whatever. I think you're getting a lot more brain juice out of the doctor than you would be if you sucked anybody else. There are just no good ways to phrase the plot of this story, are there? Well, that that it's the specific properties of the doctor, you know, like it's like hooking your Tesla up to a nuclear reactor or something like that. Well, I just like, I mean, like, and this, of course, is me being a bit of a you know having a bit of like modern fan knowledge but i do like kind of like the implication that like you know his kind of deep and abiding morality and and pacifism is like hard earned and 
it's it like it's like the weight of everything that he has been through is so vast that like trying to absorb something anything from him would necessarily come with that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know. I, I maybe they didn't even think of, that far ahead I in this point of the story. I kind of like that, but again, I still feel like that's relatively recent. But I but I do like yeah that. probably I do like that. It's also that this story is very 1966. It's it's telling this in a particular point in a particular time, and it's doing it a couple of months before Star Trek happens too, and that changes the yeah. way genre TV is going to do this kind of story. And it's not going to do that right away. It's going to have its own false starts and yeah, failed yeah, yeah. efforts at for doing sure. That. But I think that's interesting in this way because it was just maybe maybe a little, just a little bit of a just a little bit of a forerunner, a little bit of a nod. Yeah. And you've also got the fact that there are a lot of things that confuse the message that are kind of accidental. Like you could view this as it being about, you know, generation, con- you know, old people and young people just yeah. because so many people are in caked on old age makeup. And all of the, you know, British class structures that yeah. just fit into all drama there are kind of unavoidable, but it makes it feel like the working class are the ones are being oppressed here when that may not have been the specific angle they meant to have. Mm-hmm. I mean, there mm-hmm. there are like still relevant um, messages that you can take about like m- the modern economy because Jano's not entirely wrong about progress being built on exploitation. I mean... It's it's still something that goes on in our modern world. Yes, but I suppose the notion that that's uh, ineluctable, I guess, is... Uh... But it, it sort of also is implying this society has no clear economy of any kind, right? And yet that exploitation is transcending that. Mm-hmm. This is meant to be a, a want-for-nothing utopia built on a massive despicable lie. Yeah. But ultimately, the cynicism of it is just the defining quality of him as a villain which is fine because we're about to lose track of any of the defining qualities of him as a villain and never get them back. (laughs) It's true. He's been weatherwaxed now. I don't intend to leave these people in this oppressed state. So we move on to episode four. Uh, The guards tell Dodo and Steven to throw down their light guns, and Dodo does exactly that, with Steven calling her a fool. In the control room, Dr. Jano is wishing for Steven not to do the same, and his hand moves toward the control panel. In the hallway, a door opens and our team is able to escape. A doll realizes that someone must have helped them by opening that door, and he rushes to the control room. He briefly accuses Jano of opening the door, but Jano just reminds a doll that he's the one who's in charge around here. Dr. Jano decides that he's going to personally lead the patrols in search for the strangers. Outside, Steven and uh, Dodo are dragging the doctor's corpse around as they flee. <laughs> they meet up with Chal and stand around talking about how this is the state that their people are usually in when they leave the city, which gives the guards time to catch up. And Steven says he's going to stay behind to hold them off as the others drag the doctor's lifeless meat bag to the caves. (laughs) Dr. Jano, Idal, and four guards are outside the city, and Jano suggests that they split up. Idal and two guards will go and guard the TARDIS, and Jano and his two will head toward the caves. Idal is very suspicious, and he decides that he's going to stick with Jano, 
I mean, Jano might need help after all. So he just sends his two guards to go and guard the TARDIS. Up ahead, a doll notices some movement, and he pulls Jano to cover as a guard is shot between the eyes with a light gun. Steven continues to stall for time as Dodo and Chal make it to the caves. As Steven runs, he's in Jano's sights, but Dr. Jano doesn't fire. Inside the cave, Nanina is still taking care of the captured exorce, and Tor is still witching he'd just been able to murder the guy. Uh, there's some talk about Tor thinking that they need to destroy their enemies, and Nanina thinking that's not the way to save themselves, and we're saved from more of this discussion as Chal and Dodo arrive, with Steven running up soon after, pursued by guards. Our heroes uh, drag the doctor into the cave, where Steven has Dodo give the doctor some of that medicine from earlier that Dodo had completely forgotten existed. Oh, plot point pills. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Steven stays at the cave's mouth and fires on Jano, who's heading toward them. The husk of the doctor knocks the gun aside and insists that Steven must not harm Jano. Uh, Dodo says they should all escape back to the TARDIS, but the doctor refuses, saying he won't leave these people to their oppression. He says they're going to return to the city and destroy that lab, thus destroying the power that the leaders have over these people. Well, Doctor, I hope you can do it within the next 15 minutes. <laughs> and I hope that you have a better plan than Stephen did. Well, the thing is, for once, it's not the, does the doctor have a plan? No, the doctor apparently has had a plan, and even by his standards, it seems to have been a really cool plan. It's, it, it involved more personal risk than was sensible, but even by his standards, no, this is a pretty good one. <laughs> Stephen points out that getting back in will be impossible, and the doctor says all they need is a friend on the other side, and we already have that friend. In the valley, Jano orders Idal to take the patrol and return to the city, he alone will remain behind. A doll strongly objects, but Jano insists that he is the leader, that is an order, and I will be returning to the city with those strangers as my prisoners. In the cave, Stephen says the patrol is left, and the doctor tells him that you'll find one has remained. When it's dark, we'll have a visitor. Chal confusedly and rightly points out that this old guy is speaking in riddles. Back at the city, a doll is talking to Santa and saying that Jano is changed. He's not acting normally. Despite Santa's warning that a doll's making some dangerous accusations, a doll tells the arriving group of elders that he believes they are all about to be betrayed. Uh, Santa tells them all about Jano's intransference from the doctor, and Adal decides that this is what's going on then, and he, Adal, will take command of this situation. Despite the fact that there's this whole group of elders right here. <laughs> yeah. But none of them have names. You see the <laughs> no. problem. If they've been given a personality trait or line of dialogue, then sure, but... As it stands, they have to go to the person who's spoken the most who is there. <laughs> yep, that is the law. Well, I'm on the council, but this seems legit. Yeah. Ranking on the call sheet shall be the whole of the law. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all very simple. You want it by intellect. You got it. And along with it, you received 
A little conscience, hmm? Conscience. At night, Jano goes to the cave asking for the doctor. The savages shrink back, but the doctor insists they mustn't be afraid. Jano is a friend. When Jano asks how the doctor knows this, this is where the doctor explains he knew that Jano would take his intransference entirely for himself, and along with that doctor's intellect, he'd get a bit of his conscience. Jano now realizes that what they've been doing is evil, and he's going to help them to end it, aren't you, Jano? And since they now think alike, the doctor knows exactly how Jano plans to do this. You know what? So, it's Jano's plan, see? <laughs> I, I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated <laughs> by this plot point, and I just can't let it go. <laughs> However, the thing that really bothers me now, I think, looking back on it, we lose Steven. We could just have two doctors and Dodo. <laughs> how amazing would that be? I don't know. I feel like that might be a little bit insufferable, too. <laughs> you can't go outside. Mm, yes, no. Mm. <laughs> it's quite simple, Benjamin. Yes, it's very simple. We've discussed this. Yes, mm. I mean, it, it, it sounds fun right up to the moment that you realize you probably don't want to have to see exactly what that makeup looked like in moving images. I thought you were going to say <laughs> okay, it's like, okay. how, how annoying would it be to like, have the doctor and then someone who constantly is like, looks like he's just mocking him right next to him in every scene. <laughs> the entire conversation, like 90% of the dialogue would be, we're having this conversation at supersonic speed just to save the audience time. So while the doctor and Jano are conversing in Dr. Jano, uh, the captive guard, Exorce, has managed to escape his bonds and runs off, chased by Nanina. Nanina soon catches up to him and reminds him that he's, l that he's learnt that her people are people too, and if he speaks on what he's just heard, he's going to condemn them forever. Exorce takes this to heart, and when he gets back to the city, he reports that he didn't see Jano before escaping. The laboratory, the generators, all the machinery which we have used to destroy our fellows. They are not our fellows, Jano. They are the savages. They're not capable of development like How us. do you know? All history proves it. Jano and the savages approach the city, with Jano herding them as prisoners. They arrive at the lab just as Idal is ordering Exorce to be interrogated, and Jano brings in his prisoners. Senta immediately flips on Idal, and Jano orders Idal to be arrested and led away immediately. Because he's a beat cop who just tried to stage a coup. Jano then has the doors sealed, confusing Senta and explains that this lab is the source of the elder supremacy on this planet, the machines that they use to destroy their fellow people, and it's all going to be destroyed right now. But my goo tubes! <laughs> Senta says, But they aren't our fellows, they're just savages. They can't develop like us. History proves this. Jano declares that the savages are our equals, and he begins smashing the machines. With some prodding from Nanina, Exorce takes part in the Great Smashing as well, so he's completely changed sides. 
And the doctor gleefully turns to Dodo and expresses the satisfaction of destroying something that is evil. You know, I I really would have liked to see a little bit more of this. We did get a little bit in the literal sense. There are a few tiny fragments of story, and one or right. one or two of them are in the in, in the smashing things up moment. They're recorded. Was it was this the one where it was recorded from like a television by somebody? That's Some what it looked person? like. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. only about thirty seconds of it for the whole they're story. Little, but, uh, they're little. are brief yeah. little snippets, mostly of dialogue between characters. I think that one of the bits that we did get was that little um, thing with the doctor being <laughs> gleefully talking about how great smashing things is. <laughs> there's that. There's some of the of Hartnell stumbling around when he isn't allowed to speak yet. Hmm. And then there's the big f- goodbye at the end. Th- that's pretty yeah. much all that exists. Just a minute. I could. A great honor, dear boy. Well, I can't walk out on you and do that. think of the challenge to be able to set up the people of these planets for a new life. So while all this smashing is going on, a doll manages to get the doors open and he orders the doctor to be killed on sight and Jano to be arrested. He finds himself in a light gun standoff with Steven, but Steven's quicker on the draw and that ends the threat. Jano and Chal say that they must build a world that they can both live in. Both sides must learn to trust each other and they need a new leader to unite them. Jano says they need someone like the Doctor to stay as their leader until they can all become one people. But the Doctor says, no, I, I, I can't do that. Sorry, buddies. I have some <laughs> running away from responsibility to you at speed, and I would like very much to get on with that. But I do have this sidekick I need to get rid of. <laughs> yeah. And his contract's up. But, you know, he's gotten a kind of a nice little arc in this particular serial, like whatever else you might think about Steven, um, or, you know, how clunky it might have been executed. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, Chell says that his people really want this Steven guy for some reason. Steven begins to refuse, but the doctor's like, sure thing, you got him. See you on the other side, Steven, old buddy. Right. Like, I like how Steven is kind of like, what? No, I couldn't. The doctor's like, no, yeah, definitely you can. You absolutely can. You, you've been stinking up the TARDIS, and uh, I mean, <laughs> well, he seems, he seems yeah. like kind of proud and avuncular, you know? No, he is. He is. It's just so abrupt. It's just so it abrupt. It is very abrupt. I, I was shocked that it was happening. I would have expected, like, at least one episode before, like, I'm, I'm sorry, real writing would have had Stephen <laughs> kind of, like... <laughs> becoming slowly dissatisfied and like you know uh missing you know his time from the war as like a pilot or whatever the hell you know i don't know i'm just writing or just like, a scene where he's like i've got to be the one to help these people you know yeah something right like for him to say it right instead of like him showing reluctance and the doctor's like no definitely you should yeah you should totally stay here instead of the doctor just saying this guy's your king now so long suckers <laughs> there is the suggestion that on some level the doctor knows that certain things have to happen and clearly this one's been just glowing so bright in his face the whole time it's just been bugging him and he's thrilled to finally get the moment behind well and him. like i feel like in more modern doctor who right like they would have gotten back onto the tardis and then dodo would have been like oh i'm gonna miss steven and he's gonna be like that never that young boy will grow to make an empire the likes of which you've never seen or something <laughs> like that you know like some kind of like foreknowledge we get we get half of that. that. We get the first half do of they? that, and he's like, "Oh, I don't think so." You know, like, 
I'm going to miss Steven. And it's like, I wonder if we'll ever see him again. Oh, I very much doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My records indicate he dies in three years. <laughs> <laughs> Ding for Steven, I guess. <laughs> of a profoundly indignified ailment we won't get into the details of. Falls off a cliff. Onto a puppy. It's awful. <laughs> Stephen agrees to stay, and he says his goodbyes. The doctor expresses his pride in the young man, and Dodo and the doctor head off to the TARDIS. Next time, the war machines. We should at least give credit to the fact that when we can see the goodbye, actually, clearly, yeah. Hartnell and Purvis's you know, handshake, that's actually really well done. The, yeah. The, the actors are doing more to sell it than what we can... The script. ...what we can hear <laughs> for much of it. Yeah. yeah. It's not even the script. It's it's partly just the fact that there's very few pictures to go yeah. through with this. Yeah. Good news, you can count on one hand the number of times you are going to have to watch a reconstruction. They have animated so much since you've started that uh, that the future is is at least got some kind of movement for most of it now. Yeah, since next season, only ten episodes actually still exist, but a lot of the other ones have at least been animated. Huh. Cool. Which is nice. I do have one very depressing story about this story to tell you, but uh, which is that apparently the locals were really, really cool on everybody when they were filming this, when they were out in the quarry and everything doing that. And the thing is, Jackie Lane, just before they left, actually found out why. There was a sand pit attached to this quarry, and about three weeks before they filmed there, a local boy had died in it from a fall. And as a result, everyone was treating it like they were desecrating a grave and no one in the production knew about this. Oh, my God. And then years later, it was sort of when people started doing Doctor Who location tourism, you know, going to the places that had been filmed. They discovered that they couldn't go to the first quarry the show had ever had because yeah, about a month after they filmed it there, they filled in the quarry and the sand pit out of communal grief. And oh, everyone was kind of appalled that they'd made a Doctor Who story there in the meantime. But we just wow. put all of this advertising to visit your quarry that apparently is now a gravesite. Well, not the caves. Wow. The caves are... The caves would have been somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, and now they've got less competition, right? Yeah. <laughs> Missing the quarry. Come on down to the caves. <laughs> Free on Saturdays for kids. <laughs> but not that kid. You'd think that somebody would have said something, would have actually told the people, you know, hey, bad things happened at this quarry. That's very sad. <laughs> I sleep with the lights on now. It's in the dark. I see the boy's face and so on. <laughs> All right. Well, on that cheerful note, let's move on to our reactions to this story. Thumbs up, thumbs down, or is it going to get a meh? So who wants to begin? I mean, if we're talking emojis, can I just give it like the crying face? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, I have to give it a meh, I guess, because like I just don't feel I feel so not strongly about it. Like I like the story, sort of. I like the idea. I like what the story could have been. But I mean, that's just that's kind of my thing. If it really was supposed to be like an allegory of South Africa, ham-handed though it may have been, it's certainly nice that they were thinking about it. Steven's send-off, it just felt so rushed. I mean, even Susan got like a couple episodes where they were setting it up a little bit, a little bit. 
I mean, it just felt Vicky-esque all over again, except this time <laughs> everybody was like pushing him to leave. He didn't yeah. want to. But my stuff, my panda. Yeah. I'm never seeing it again. Oh my God, I'd forgotten about the stupid panda. Poor hi-fi. Do you think they just left it, you know, chucked out in the quarry yeah. and the, the years later? Got sucked they, out yeah, the airlock. found all of Steven's spare clothes just in a pile. What were these? <laughs> I'm surprised that somebody hasn't written a book about that. There hasn't been much. I think there's one big finish where they tell a story from the perspective of Steven, who's been there on that planet for a long while. But there hasn't been much further, you know, further done with uh, the character after this. Oh, point. I've I've got a couple things about him after this, but huh. we'll get to that. Well, later. yeah, I mean that. Yeah, we'll. I'll just wrap up by saying uh, it was fine, All and right. it was a crappy way for Steven to go out. So, meh. All right, Bay, why are you giving it? Andy kind of summed it up pretty well. So there's not a ton that I can add onto this. This settles so firmly in the meh for me. I can't even tell you. It had important things to say and was kind of incompetent at saying it. It's like it kind of abstracted things to the point that the valuable messages in there were just kind of lost. It gets as muddled as Jano's personality after the intransference. You can't really understand where you stand in relation to the plot. It it did surprise me to find out that the writer was considered so good because I felt at least for the back half of this and the doctor's overarching plot to uh, change this society seemed built on coincidence and and flimsy at best. Uh, I was upset to lose Steven because I'd grown fond of him. I mean, like right now we only have three characters really to cling to. The Doctor, who's easily the best character anymore, because what else do you have? Steven and Dodo. And then we got rid of the second one. So it's just it's just the Doctor and Dodo. Like, uh, that doesn't give me a lot of hope for the next serial, I gotta tell you. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, the fact that a week after watching this, I could barely remember it, told me a lot about how I need to rank this one. All right. Kieran, where, why are you giving it? Where are you coming down on this one? Okay, so I think that there's something about the arc of, you know, the TARDIS crew being important and, you know, losing Steven as one more connection to everyone we've had up till this point, connecting him to all of his responsibilities slowly going away as a way of leading to something really interesting. That might be something to look for into the future. Right now, all I can say is you've pretty much summed up the number of different ways to point out that something is the, Plato- the platonic ideal of man. There is <laughs> there is, there is nothing I dislike especially about this. I am as fond of this story as I can about anything that I am never going to say anything beyond meh to. There's no question it's not a meh. It's not contemptible or bad, and it's not it doesn't have any number of great things about it to say that it's good. It's fine. It's not going to be the most boring story in the remainder of the Hartnell run. It's not going to be the one you want to forget the most. It's just, you know, doing that job itself. It existed once and doesn't anymore. <laughs> it is the memory of a story. And the, and you can't spell memory without meh. That's oh. <laughs> <laughs> good. <laughs> oh man that's deep all right yeah no that's just really good i just wish i'd have thought of that you will oscar you will <laughs> so yeah um 
I'm I I think I'm a little bit more generous to you all since I was kind of stuck between a high meh and a low thumbs up. But yeah, I'm kind of settling on high meh. Just, you know, because I think that it's, you know, overall, it's a good story. It kind of really feels like it's hard to say it when you're, you know, only three seasons in, but you're also 120 episodes in. It kind of feels like a throwback to an earlier era of Doctor Who um, with the kind of with this kind of story that we haven't seen all that much in the recent bleakness that we've had. Um, it just feels like, you know, back in the good old days where it was just go to a planet, cause some chaos, and leave on the TARDIS. Cast a bunch of hairy dudes. Yeah. And and they, I mean, the, the, the sheer madness of this is that this is literally a story where no one died, where the Doctor saves a whole civilization and, you know, redeems one of the worst beings he's yeah. ever met. And the story doesn't even note that this went really well, that no one died. They don't bother to note this. They just consciously structure things so that no one does and move on. Yeah. I, the word that kept coming to my mind with this story is it's kind of quaint after everything that we've experienced thus far this season. Mm-hmm. Well, our, our first <laughs> unanimous meh, I think, is uh, it? Very possibly. Mm-hmm. I, I just keep imagining like there's like a like an Excel spreadsheet somewhere, right? <laughs> and like my column is like way more red. But <laughs> yeah, this is the first one where it's just solid gray. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, there are a few little things that happen here for the first time. But you know, if you're expecting stories that do lots of radical changes to the show's basic DNA. Those may or may not be coming. This is not it. No, this is really, you know, it. it's in some ways, it's sort of the end of an era because you're not going to see a lot of this type of story from now on. It's just kind of an anomaly there in the middle of the season where you have this older sort of Doctor Who story. And, you know, at some point in the future, uh, not to spoil anything, this writer is going to do another story with a lot of the same themes that everyone is much fonder of because it's at least doesn't make the basic mistakes this one does. For one thing, everyone for years criticized this as the story that doesn't have a monster. And that seems superficial. But no, monsters are memorable. You would have remembered more about this story if something galvanized your memory. Well, it both hits you over the head and like obscures things to the point of almost meaninglessness, kind of negating everything. The monster is Eurocentrism. Hmm. Which in space is difficult to pull off. <laughs> yeah. So, our viewing numbers for this story. Yeah, overall, this was the second least watched Hartnell story. Hmm. Our totals go from a low of 4.5 million viewers to a high of 5.6 million viewers. So, not a lot of people tuning in for this story. Uh, some of our reactions, of course, we'll turn to Jeremy Bentham, who said, The only flaw visible in this story is its lack of a monster. Otherwise, it would deservedly be far better remembered than it is today. Some of our reviews that we have from more modern times. Um, one writer says that the story has its heart in the right place, even if it is a bit preachy. The discontinuity guy says that it plays intelligent games with witless sci-fi cliches. 
About Time points out that this is the start of a common Doctor Who theme where the Doctor visits a utopia that is formed from the suffering of the non-elites. And the writers suspect that a lot of this story is lost in the visual details that we are unable to see. Elizabeth Sandifer likes to point out that there are a lot of similarities between this story and the Ark, but with completely opposite ideologies. Yep. Uh, Both are about colonialism, but this one is explicitly anti-colonialist. It shows how the oppressed are capable of civilization, and it portrays the oppressors as basically being vampires. And she says that, you know, there, she points out that there is sort of a change here in our Doctor Who stories. Because from here on out, we'll move away from a lot of these future societies and move t- more toward monster, the monster era of the show, as it's called. Doesn't she also point out that this is really a, a you know, a, a last moment to appreciate the fact that Peter Purvis, no matter what material he was given during a year in which the show was completely falling apart half the time, sort of was the glue that held it together. And regardless of whether it still needs him, that we're probably going to miss him. Oh, yeah. Pour one out for that Purvis. That is precisely what she says about uh, Stephen and Peter Purvis. I did my reading. Yep. Yes, her exact words are that the actor exceeded the character by a wide margin. I yeah. agree. I always did think, like, American accent aside, <laughs> he was but that much wasn't more talented. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, excuse me. <laughs> the uh, gunfighters? Not, not in the oh. gunfighters. Oh, right. uh, well, I yeah. can play the piano. I thought you were talking about Stephen's, like, great, 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 great grandson yeah. at the top of the Empire State Building. I was talking about them both. Uh, and, and I guess what I'm saying is not... I, I was talking about him as an actor, rather. Yeah. You know, despite like that accent, I th- I agree. I think he was he gave as much as he could given the role, and he was not given enough to really shine because I think he was a he was a he's a great actor. Does anybody else have anything that they want to say about Stephen? Is is he um has he passed? No, nope, he's still, still alive. No, he's still around, so he could conceivably. Peter, you're, you're great. Yes, I agree. You're great, and you should come on the show. I actually tried to figure out how to contact him, and it didn't go very well because I sent something off and never heard back. Oh, well. <laughs> like um, William Russell before him, he's actually played the Doctor a fair number of times for Big Finish Productions, in which he's also being Stephen. Yeah. He does quite a good job with Hartnell's sense of humor. He he manages to make that come across really well. But yeah, no, I, I enjoy Stephen as a character. Maybe not as much as Ian before him, but you know, Stephen Steve, Stephen was a uh, was fun to watch at least, and that was all down to Purvis because it sure as heck wasn't down to how he was written. How, how did Hartnell feel about his departure? That I'm not sure. I'd say that at this point, Hartnell is just resigned to everybody leaving and doesn't want to get close to anybody anymore. <laughs> he wasn't blindsided by it in the same way that yeah. the others were. And he and there've been enough warning because, you know, they've, you know, known that his contract was going to be up at this point that it wasn't going to get renewed again. I don't think it was as serious a blow, but they were friends. Yeah. And he is running out of them. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and the next person who's going to join, he is not going to be very friendly with. <laughs> so, Uh, The modern consensus on this, we have our polls, 
Our 2008 poll, this came in number 162 out of, out of 200. In our 2013 poll, it was 198 out of 241. Our positives, they say that it has an effective atmosphere. Our negatives, the pacing is off. Uh, they say, you know, some of it's it takes too long to make the obvious reveal that the elders are the bad guys. I disagree with that. I really liked the way they revealed that in the first episode with the editing and intercutting. But some people didn't. And, of course, the silly hats. <laughs> I mean, the silly hats. And don't forget the silly shoulder pads, too. <laughs> Those guards have costumes that are wildly impractical in many different ways. <laughs> So, yeah, talking about uh, Peter Purvis and what he's been up to since. Um, after this, after leaving Doctor Who, he did some more acting, but he largely left that aside to focus on presenting something that he still does today. Uh, from 1967 to 1978, he was a presenter on the children's show Blue Peter, where he'd often host special features on Doctor Who and interviews with the actors. And some of those segments included some of the clips that have survived from missing episodes as those clips were removed to be used on that show. Huh. It, it should also be said that he and the other uh, hosts of Blue Peter in that era are the iconic ones that, you know, you in Britain, you would know who they were in the same way that here, you know, who Gordon from Sesame Street is that there is just a fundamental ingrained in every child knowledge of who those you know hosts were and what the pets were named on that show and various things like that. It's unavoidable. So yeah, and he did that for plenty of time. Uh, he's also for a long time was doing television coverage of major dog shows. And yeah, now he's, as Kieran mentioned, he's been doing uh, some of the big Finnish audios since around 2007. Um, as for the character of Steven... Um, there have been, you know, some, as Kieran mentioned again, some audios about him. And in these, uh, he apparently became king. He had three daughters, his favorite of which was inexplicably named Dodo. Huh. I haven't heard this one. That's inexplicable. His daughter Dodo is eventually assassinated, which no. le <laughs> which leads Stephen to go into exile after deciding that the people should govern themselves democratically. And eventually his granddaughter becomes the president. And then he just wanders off and lives the rest of his life on a mountain. Okay. So, yeah, there's Stephen's post-Doctor Who life. So he did not, in fact, burn down the city about five seconds after the TARDIS left, like I was half expecting. He, he did, however, have Tor and Adal fight to the death. Just, <laughs> yeah. just for funsies. Not for, like, for anyone to watch. Just locked him in a room. And said, we'll get to whoever's left tomorrow. This one's for Steven. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, and this is our first time that the Doctor is left with a single female companion. And the time between this and our next story was used for several Doctor slash Dodo novels, which I'm sure are all a pleasure to read and amongst the most popular. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's only really one prominent one. And would you like two sentences that are going to sound completely insane? It's set in an alternate universe uh, steampunk French Revolution era story, features a parallel universe Marquis de Sade. Is this fan fiction? No, this was officially okay. licensed published okay. stuff. Yes. Okay. 
All right. So the books in the 90s did uh, basically they did a run that was about the, you know, continuing from the TV show once it had ended. And that did well enough that they did a line of past doctor stories called the missing adventures. And the thing is, most of them would only get one or two filling that gap because they only had that. Like they only did that for a few years before they lost the license. And then the BBC took over and generally they weren't as good. Um Big Finish is apparently going to be doing First Doctor and Dodo stories soon, but they held off on Dodo for a long time because the actress was just not an actress anymore and didn't want to come back. And Mm. they just got around to, okay, we'll recast the character very recently. Well, it would be difficult for them to not recast her at this point. But <laughs> uh, yes, unfortunately, the first one came out the week after she died. Wow. She'd apparently been fine with them doing it. She didn't care. But uh, yeah, so this is a gap that's going to have more stuff in it in a year or two. Than but it does yeah, now. If, if you want to read a book about how Dodo gets a space STD, you can. I... You don't want to. It's... <laughs> it's Basically, they they had one writer who did a couple of books who wanted really to be like the Grant Morrison of that sort of thing. And those books are largely incomprehensible. And that happens to be one of them. Is this a productive use of my time? Uh, My finite time on this earth? (laughs) Reading about Dodo's space herpes? I'm going to be serious with you for a minute. When I was in high school, my answer would have been different than it is now. <laughs> I, you know, I would, I would probably say the same thing. I definitely wanted to know about as much as much about bounty hunter, like extended universe stuff. So, like, I'm, I'm oh, with you. Yeah, no, I'm with you. That's a good point. Like, they did a bunch that were like really odd sort of tonal experiments if you want a sixth doctor story where he meets judge dread that had to be changed from being actual judge dread at the last minute because they thought they had the license and then lost it that exists no i'm good no that one i'm good if i had to pick my two least favorite writers from that whole run the one who wrote that book and the one who wrote the one about dodo and the marquis de sade are literally my least favorite too you need just like a side blog for this we need to give him like just like a Kieran bites. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I think so. Maybe so. Kieran bites is not the best. No, no, it's definitely not. No, I'm just. Some we'll workshop. It. We'll workshop anyway. it. I mean, yeah. You, you got to remember the books in the '90s are where many of the writers of the modern show came from, yeah. right? That lots of the people who started in those books actually have like best-selling authors. They're famous people from television. I realize I've brought up that one Mark Gatiss sketch from the League of Gentlemen and the Cave Tour Guide multiple times in this episode, but Mark Gatiss's career started in those books mm-hmm. and, and so many other people. But, you know, some of those people, uh, yeah, were never heard from again. For rightfully so. Anyways, yep. we should begin to say our goodbyes. So next time we will be talking about the War Machines. Uh, I would like to thank Kieran for joining us this time. Are you absolutely sure? I I, I feel like I should go. Goodbye, everyone. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us today in the lovely cave system. That's all I got. (laughs) And this is uh, Bay, and in the words of the doctor, we mustn't look back.
I'd just like to say uh, I'll be missing making all those Aerosmith references. I don't know what I'm going to do with myself anymore. Good night, everybody. See you next time. <laughs>